The first cases of COVID-19 were diagnosed in late December 2019 near a lab in Wuhan, China, that may or may not have been responsible for accidentally releasing the virus into the wild. The disaster that took shape around the world in the following weeks was like watching someone fall from a skyscraper in slow motion. The first case of COVID-19 in the United States was diagnosed on January 20, 2020. But even though there had been three weeks to make contingency plans to defend against a fast-moving and deadly virus, the White House seemed almost paralyzed. Donald Trump, consumed with his re-election campaign, did not declare the public health emergency that gave his administration broad powers to act until January 31st. Trump, of course, believed that a wall stretching from the Pacific Ocean to the Gulf of Mexico would keep undocumented immigrants from crossing the southern border. So in retrospect, it makes sense that he rolled out only one major policy response in the next five weeks. He stopped travel from China. This neither stopped the spread of a virus that was already in the United States, nor did it keep out infected travelers from other countries. By the time Trump allocated $8.3 billion for emergency health care on March 6th and declared a national emergency on March 13th, there were 2,000 known infections and 41 deaths. Health care workers were starting to work double shifts, six states had closed their schools to prevent spread, and the New York Times predicted that as many as 2.4 million Americans could soon be competing for 925,000 hospital beds. New York City was an early epicenter, and everything fell apart on March 20th. This is New York's mayor at the time, Bill de Blasio, following up on a lockdown order from then-Governor Andrew Cuomo. I do want to start by saying uh, that we had a very, very important announcement by Governor Cuomo. I want to thank him and commend him for the decision uh, that he made. I think it is the right decision. Uh, It's going to be a new reality in this city. And we have to understand that this is something that's absolutely necessary. I want to say to my fellow New Yorkers, none of us asked for the coronavirus, to say the least. None of us expected the coronavirus. We are in a a whole new dynamic. We're all learning every day how to make sense of it. And when I give you these briefings, and just like my colleagues, we'll try and be as blunt and straightforward as we possibly can be. But some of the time, the answer will be we don't know because we still don't know. There are so many things we're trying to sort out in a brand new reality. We all know what happened next. People who could leave cities did. Medical and nursing schools graduated their classes early and sent young doctors and nurses into the hospitals to support already fatigued staffs. Students attended school, as best they could, online. Amazon and food delivery orders went through the roof. And work, if you still had it, became very complicated. Some non-essential workers were sent home to work online, and others were laid off and left to fend for themselves. Essential workers had to keep working no matter what. Often the poorest and most vulnerable among us, they were constantly exposed to the virus with little or no protection. Who would or would not physically survive the pandemic was one question, but economic survival was part of that equation. And the divisions between us initially crystallized around which laid-off workers had access to the social safety net. W-2 workers were eligible for unemployment. They paid social security taxes every month. 
But 1099 workers, a growing category of contingent laborers who work as independent contractors, were not. Then there are other divides that cross-cut the 1099 category. People who worked in bricks-and-mortar businesses and those whose labor was contracted through platforms like Uber, Lyft, Airbnb, TaskRabbit, and Instacart. Gig workers who made an income with their own vehicles, tools, homes, and hustle. There were people who still had jobs, others who had worked several jobs and lost a few of them, and some who suddenly lost all of their income. As the world of work sagged and collapsed, University of North Carolina sociologist and W-2 worker Alexandria Ravenel decided to document this economic shock in real time. Ravenel had just published Hustle and Gig, Struggling and Surviving in the Sharing Economy. She jumped on social media to locate and interview precarious or suddenly precarious workers about their survival strategies. Ravenel listened as people told her how they navigated government programs, avoided scams and predators, and balanced multiple jobs. She found out how a sudden infusion of money, $1,000 a week, could create the mental and economic space for a worker to rethink, reset, and plan their life. And Ravenel found out that a universal basic income, or UBI, regular cash payments that underwrite a humane standard of living, could work to lift people out of poverty. Contrary to conservative economic theories that position government stipends as a disincentive to labor, Ravenel's research illustrates a graphic truth. Even after a government check took care of their basic needs, people wanted to work. In a crisis, it gave their lives meaning and purpose. But it also, in some cases, freed them from work long enough to figure out how to live sustainably and with less stress. The result was Side Hustle Safety Net, How Vulnerable Workers Survive Precarious Times, a book that both illustrates the holes in our safety net and shows us how to fix them. Join Alexandria and me for this episode of Why Now, where history and politics meet the challenge of today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, Professor of History Emeritus at the New School for Social Research, a contributing editor at Public Seminar, and the author of The Political Junkie Substack. This is episode 47. It's good work if you can get it. Alexandria Ravenel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really want to ask you so much about this rich book, but I want to start with how you decided to do it. I mean, was it like the rest of us? You're sitting there, the pandemic's happening, and you say, I got to write a book, and I don't know how I'm going to do it in the pandemic, and you lit on this? Talk to us about that. Uh, so that's a really good question. So, you know, my first book, Hustling Gig, is very focused on the risks that workers experience. And I wrote Hustling Gig very much pre-pandemic, right? I did the data collection for that back around like 2015-ish. Um, so, yeah, I'm here in New York. The sirens are starting, people are scared, and all I can find myself thinking is, what about these people who 
can't shelter at home, who are not necessarily getting unemployment, because this is, you know, at this point, even it's early March. And so I wanted to find out what it was like to be the only people who are out on the street, the only people who are going into these grocery stores, the people who aren't able to simply shelter at home. And so that's why I started interviewing gig workers and creative freelancers and low-wage W-2 workers, like restaurant workers and grocery stores. And then there are these other people who are poly-employed. And I wonder if we could take a minute and define some terms for our listeners. What's a side hustle? What does it mean to be poly-employed? What is a gig job? Oh, wow. You want the full round of definitions. <laughs> you betcha. <laughs> um, so poly-employment is simply the working of multiple jobs. Uh, those jobs might be two W-2 jobs. It might mean that you have one full-time W-2 job and then you have a part-time 1099 or independent contractor job. Or it might mean that you have maybe two part-time jobs and you are also picking up some freelance gigs on the side. So you have multiple sources of income, hopefully. That's polyemployment. Gig work is work that is 1099 based. It tends to be linked to platforms. So Uber, Lyft, TaskRabbit, DoorDash, these are all gig based jobs. We're also seeing the rise of what I call shadow gig platforms. And these are gig platforms that nobody really knows about, but they are growing in the shadows, sort of doing business to business. And then a side hustle is something that we have very much seen popularized in recent years. This idea that one job is not enough and you should have a side hustle that allows you to have your passion or additional income. In the quote old days, that might have just been, you know, maybe you were babysitting on the side or you were mowing people's lawns. And now it might be you're doing DoorDash. And you use a phrase called W 2 job. And I just want to tell listeners that's a kind of job you have, and that I used to have before I retired, you have a salary and out of that salary comes social security and unemployment insurance and all of those little taxes that then make up the social safety net. One of the big distinctions is W-2 jobs and everything else. Talk to me about what happens when the pandemic hits and all of these people who can't go online, as you and I did when we were teaching, and they don't have unemployment, they're being let go. What happens to all of these 1099 people and polyemployed people? Right. Well, typically what happens when somebody who is W-2 loses their job is, yes, they can go on unemployment assistance. And typically 1099 workers, independent contractors cannot. But during the pandemic, of course, this all becomes an unsettled time. This all sort of turns everything on its head. And suddenly gig workers, 1099 workers, were usually ineligible for unemployment assistance can suddenly get unemployment. So they apply. But the unemployment system is not built for 1099 workers. I mean, it literally takes an act of Congress for them to get unemployment benefits right? during the pandemic. There are massive levels of delays for these workers. There's one worker that I interview. She is poly-employed. She has two jobs. She has W-2 work, and then she also has gig work. And it takes her so long to get unemployment assistance, more than two months. She completely runs out of money. She loses 20 pounds because, as she says, I don't know if I can afford to eat. 
And if I eat, I can't pay my rent. And if I pay my rent, I can't eat and I can't take care of my cat. And what is going on here? And she ends up borrowing money from a journalist friend. Some other workers end up turning to gig work. So even if they qualify for unemployment assistance, the delays are so extensive, they end up driving for DoorDash or doing Uber Eats. One guy talks about driving around and he's seeing these morgue trailers and he knows they're full of bodies. And he's like, I might die doing this, but unemployment is MIA, missing in action. And I have no choice to, in order to support my family. He's like, even if I make $3, that's a hamburger over at White Castle. You know, that's some money coming in. And so we see that workers really end up turning to the gig economy in a moment of desperation because they've been let down by their government. And then there are the people who are actually eligible for unemployment, but they don't know that they're eligible for unemployment. Can you talk about that little glitch in the yes. system? Yes. So workers, in some cases, don't realize they're eligible for unemployment because they've been told for years that they're not eligible, right? So number one, the gig workers are always been told, nah, you're outside the social safety net. But you also have workers who are immigrants. And even if they're here legally, right, they're documented or they have work visas, everything is good. They are worried that if they go on unemployment assistance, they will be considered a public charge and they will be deported as a result. And to be clear, it's not clear, right? So they have some of their immigration attorneys who are saying, mm, dude, this might be bad for your work visa, right? How can we say you're a successful artist if you're now on unemployment assistance? And in some cases, they're like, well, maybe it's not very much money. I don't want to risk it. And so you find these people who are really in kind of a questionable situation. But also, actually, even just part-time workers think, well, you have to be full-time employed, your money can't come on tips, everything has to be documented. And in reality, in most places, being a part-time worker who's laid off, you still qualify for at least some unemployment. Uh, being a restaurant worker who's laid off, it's okay that some of your money came in for your tips. You can still qualify. And these workers lose out. I also want to remind listeners that the pandemic hits when Donald Trump is still president. So it's utterly reasonable for people who are immigrants and here legally to imagine that they could do something wrong and get deported because actually people who are here legally are getting deported. So before we get to what happens, which is the really interesting turning point in your book, how did we get unemployment insurance in the first place? And what were its strengths and what were its limitations when it was designed? Mm, I'm so glad you asked that. So a lot of times people think, well, unemployment must have come out of the Great Depression. And it did, but it doesn't come out until well into the Great Depression. The Great Depression starts with the stock market collapse in 1929. And we don't end up with national unemployment assistance until 1937. And it's actually set up in such a way that it's supposed to equalize the risks and the problems of unemployment. So previously, an employer lays people off and eh, it's not their problem anymore. It's the community has to feed them. Their friends and family have to take care of them. But under the unemployment system, employers have to contribute into a trust fund. And if they don't lay their people off, then eventually what they contribute to the trust fund gets decreased. But if they're laying people off, then they get penalized. They have to contribute more. So 
Originally, when unemployment is created, it's only available to middle class and upper middle class white men, right? You have to be in an established firm. You have to have been there for a certain period of time. You have to be making a certain amount of money. And it's not for everyone. And then as years go on, we start to expand it. We start to allow in individuals who are teachers. We start to allow in people who are employees of the state. We start to allow in salespeople and all these things. And we start to continually expand banned unemployment until around the 1970s or so. Then we don't change unemployment, but we change our workforce. And what ends up happening is that more and more people get find themselves in jobs that are maybe not eligible for unemployment. And that's where we are now. So that barring literally an act of Congress, 1099 workers do not get unemployment. And especially since the great recession, we've actually seen states slashing their unemployment eligibility. So in North Carolina, where I teach, some of the lowest levels of unemployment recipiency in the country, all you can get is 12 weeks unless you're in the middle of like a major recession. And even then, many people who would qualify do not apply or they apply and are rejected. So the model of unemployment insurance establishes a couple of things. One is that people who are the least likely to be able to save money and are the most vulnerable don't get it, like people who clean houses and people who work low-level jobs or people who work multiple jobs, which many poor people always have. But then we've got a situation in which there's also an ideological shift in the 70s and 80s and 90s in which the idea is, well, if you give people money when they're not working, they're not going to want to work. Right. And one of the things that I thought was fascinating about Side Hustle Safety Net is there's this really clear theme of people wanting to work, sort of persistently saying, I want to work, I need to work, I need to get out of the house, I need to feel like I'm moving forward. Was that a surprise to you? (laughs) You know, that was a surprise. I, I I grew up in a very conservative household in the 1980s, listening to Rush Limbaugh and everything, you know, oh, people don't want to work. I was stunned by the number of people who were like, I'm working. And I'd be like, dude, go on unemployment. It's more money. <laughs> There's this one guy I interview, such a nice guy, older gentleman. He is working as a coat check guy at a fancy restaurant in New York City. The pandemic hits, restaurant closes down. He doesn't even get his last two weeks of pay because they just close so suddenly. And instead of going on unemployment, which he would absolutely qualify for, which would probably give him around $1,000 a week, he immediately starts looking for a new job. Claire, the job he ends up taking is one that I I had him repeat it because I was like, there's no way. He accepts a job working in a takeout restaurant in the basement of a hospital that is the ground zero for COVID outbreak. It is like the hotspot in the hotspot. And I'm like, aren't you scared? And he's like, well, I got to have a job. I want to work. And so I put on my mask and I pray every day that I don't get sick and I don't bring it home to my partner and my brother and I go to work. And bless him because, yeah, you know, people need, you know, the doctors that were working in the hospital, the National Guard soldiers who were coming in and helping because the hospital was overflowing. They need food. But gosh, this guy... You know, people want to work. 
And they kept yeah. applying for jobs throughout the pandemic, even though it opened them up to scams, even though it opened them up to really questionable situations. Yeah. One of the things about the social welfare safety net, like unemployment insurance or social security, which I am now eligible Congrats. for, is that it doesn't just keep people from falling into poverty, but it injects money back into the economy. So one of the sort of common sense aspects of this is if people aren't making money, they're not spending money, and then the economy gradually begins to feel the pressure. So the government steps in, and I, I want you to tell our listeners what the process is government steps in and says, we're actually just going to start sending checks to people. How does that happen? Oh, that is a good question. So because we'd seen states reduce the amount of money they were giving out for unemployment, they also um, had not really built up their reserve funds enough. We see that the government steps in and goes, well, you know, we know that the median wage is $1,000 a week. The median unemployment assistance is about $400 a week. So we're going to need to we're going to need to make sure it equalizes, right? And that's why we get that extra $600 a week originally with the CARES Act, FPUC. You know, it, it, there are two goals to that, right? One is that if people feel that their incomes have dropped, they're really going to be looking for work, right? A lot of people are living paycheck to paycheck, or at least don't have much in terms of reserves. And so a hit to the system like that, they are going to be definitely taking on these side hustles. But the other aspect to it, is that it is that economic stabilizer, right? So unemployment is the biggest bang for the buck in terms of government programs. Unemployment generally comes in and then it immediately goes right back out. Now during COVID times, of course, this ends up being a little bit different because we have all these shutdowns and also because people are scared. Like, I don't know how long this is going to go on. The thing people often told me is that they were trying to squirrel away the money because they don't know how long the pandemic's going to end and they don't trust that the money's going to keep coming if the pandemic continues, right? They're like, mm, this is yeah. a short-term thing. Let me just hold on to as much as I can. But this does provide this really fascinating opportunity for people to kind of rest, reset, relax, and rethink what it is that they want to do. Future. Mm -hmm. So this leads to, in some cases, people able to really change what they're doing with their lives. They start new businesses. They go back to school. This money, $21,000, allows people to transform their lives. And there's this great part of the book where you talk about how people would apply and then the bureaucracy was so tangled that they wouldn't get it. And then they'd sort of forget about it. And then they would wake up one day and find like $8,000 in their bank account, <laughs> um, which, you know, because of who they were and how they had worked was more money than they had ever had in one place ever. Yes. What did people do when they suddenly got this $8,000 or $3,000. My favorite story is the guy who gets his money on one of these little prepaid cards, which is something New York had moved to right before the pandemic. And, you know, he gets the prepaid card. He like waits a little while. And then he picks up his phone one day and he like calls the number to check the balance. And it's so much money that he just kind of loses his mind and he throws the card out the window. He throws 
like over ten thousand dollars out the window i mean runs about like down the apartment steps and fortunately that prepaid card it has been activated and you know like when have you ever heard of somebody literally ten thousand dollars going out the window but then the most poignant is this guy this young guy who you know, he's got a college degree. He started driving for Uber after about a year or so of being out of college. He's been driving for Uber for four years and he wants to get out. He's like, this is a ball and chain. This is a dead end opportunity. It's a trickster. I keep thinking I'm going to make money and I don't. And he gets $8,000 deposited into his bank account, more money than he's ever seen at once. And it's on the anniversary of his stepdad's death. And he just cries. Because it's like his prayer, I get goosebumps talking about this. It's like his prayers are answered. There's light at the end of the tunnel. He can change his life now. And you know, those, those stories are so powerful and there's so many of them. But at the same time, it's kind of a failure, right? Because that money, by the time you get to $8,000, that's weeks where you shouldn't have been getting that money. That's weeks where you could have changed your life earlier. One of the things that becomes very clear from reading this book is that you can design really, really good policies, but if you don't have an administrative state that can actually make them work in a timely manner for people, it's really hard. And one of the things you talk about is that this sort of volatility of having lots of work and lots of money and then no work and no money and then maybe getting a MasterCard with $13,000 on it. And so that this kind of volatility is really hard on people. It is. Can you talk about it? It is incredibly hard on people. Well, it's very difficult to plan for the future. I mean, think about you and I, right? It, we occasionally will get a windfall of money. And, you know, we probably have different sort of mental baskets to quote Vivian Zelzer, right? That we put it in like, oh, well, here's money for my vacation. Here's money for shoes and here's money for whatever. But when you get that money in and you don't know if it's coming again, and yet you, there are things that you need to pay for, you know, we have a really big poverty tax in our society. And so if you can prepay for things or you can buy them in bulk or you can just purchase what you need all at once or on sale, that has big implications in terms of your financial well-being going forward. We did great things with giving people money, but we really need to fix that administrative component beforehand so that people were getting the money consistently. And when they started to get the money consistently, it becomes a lot easier for them to plan ahead and plan for the future and then change their lives. I thought about Elizabeth Warren a lot when I was reading your book, because Elizabeth Warren was really one of the first people to say, there are lots of people who plan their lives really well and work really hard, and then they get sick and it upsets the whole apple cart. It's not anything they're responsible for. And yet their entire financial life is turned upside down. They go bankrupt, they lose their homes. And so really what your book talks about is what if we reorganized our economic life as a nation around a basic income that everyone was entitled to regardless of who they were or what they did (laughs) or whether they were disabled or whether they were green card or whatever. Can you talk about why universal basic income has not been established, even though it makes so much sense? 
you know, universal basic income was, again, one of those things where I sort of entered this book and I was like, oh, that's a fad, whatever. And then you start really getting into the life-changing opportunities of this $21,000, because that's what the enhanced unemployment and the extensions end up equaling. And it's really huge. So we almost ended up with this being passed under Nixon. Nixon was about to sign it in. Like This was something that back in the 70s, everyone was approving of. Conservatives were approving of it. Um, supposedly some evangelicals actually sent a letter to Nixon being like, you know, we're all for this. This is great. And the reason why we don't have this is actually because of some misrepresented research that was done back in England in like the 1600s, Spean Hamlet, and this whole idea. So they used to have this right to life funding that would go out. And the idea was like, oh, everyone should have money to feed themselves and support themselves and, you know, essentially like a basic income. And then it turned out some of the elites and the local priests decided to report that this was really bad, that people decided they weren't going to work anymore and everything fell into sloth and wages were cut and it was just awful. And it turns out that someone in Nixon's administration hands him this story and is like, you will ruin society. And so he vetoes it, right? He's like, no, 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 I'm not. This isn't happening. Now, some people will say like it didn't necessarily have all the votes that it needed everywhere. Then they make changes. They try to pass it again. And essentially, we lost the opportunity for this. And now we find ourselves in this really interesting place, right? We're seeing tech companies laying people off. We're seeing this movement of workers from W-2 jobs into 1099 work. We're seeing this rise of AI. And while there are some people who say, oh, it's not going to ruin all the jobs, we're already seeing implications. And now, now we need to find ourselves going back to this, like, well, wait a second. Maybe we need to make sure that everyone has food as shelter and has this basic income or negative taxation type of scheme. One of the things that we could do in this economy that we're in, and and I just want to emphasize for listeners, there are a lot of 1099 jobs that look like W-2 jobs, but they're not. People who are working regular 40-hour weeks, blah, 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 but they're under contract from an independent contractor. You know, so there can be W-2 and 1099 people basically doing the same job. Yes. Right. But one of the things that your book suggests is that we just need to de-link work and unemployment benefits. Yes. And can you talk about what that would look like? Yeah. So I'm going to backtrack just a little. So on these 1099 work, you're right. Years ago, right before COVID started, I gave an interview actually in a TV station about AB5, the bill about 1099 work in California. And they were like, well, you know, what are some other examples? And so I'm, you know, I'm going through and they're like, what about us? I'm like, what are you talking about? They said every single person in that newsroom, which was of a like major news organization, was 1099 work. I was like, but you have desks and you're here at almost midnight on New Year's. I'm like, no, we are all 1099 workers. We see 1099 work incredibly prevalent in media, in journalism. We see it now in law. We're seeing it in technology. Something like 50% of the workers at some of these big tech firms are actually 1099 workers on contract. So what we need to do is de-link a number of our benefits that are linked with employment. So unemployment, 
Definitely. We should make it so that if workers are actively searching for jobs or if they are not, if they you know, lose one of their poly employment jobs, but still have the other one, that they're still eligible for unemployment assistance. We should also, of course, de-link health insurance from employment, right? That somebody can still have medical coverage, even if they're not in a W-2 job, because these W-2 jobs, you know, it, it's a funnel. It's being squeezed and more and more people are being squeezed out of that W-2 work into the 1099 world. And when we talk about work, of course, and, and I think your book lays this out so beautifully, work is so many different things and it asks so many different things of people. And, you know, one of the things Elizabeth Warren has always talked about because every once in a while the Republicans say, well, you know, let's, let's raise the social security age to 70. People are living a lot longer and we, you know, people could just retire at 70. And Elizabeth Warren says, well, you know, if you're a childcare worker and you've been picking up children for 50 years, if you are a bricklayer, if you're a plumber, you know, and all you have to do is look at the tradespeople coming into your house. The older ones have bad knees, bad hips, bad backs. And so we not only need to de-link medical care and unemployment and all these other benefits from work, but we need to assume that certain people like you and me will be relatively healthy at 65 or 67. And a lot of people will be health-wise the same age, but 20 years older in terms of their physical ability. Yes. Yes. I mean, Social Security is another one, right? It comes out after Great Depression and another system that we've been trying to slowly gutting in a sense as time has gone on. One of the many things, obviously, that I love about this book is you also talk about how even people who are fully employed with relatively dependable jobs often take on a side hustle. Can you talk about why that is? Yes. One of the reasons why people take on side hustles is because they need additional money, right? So that tends to be like the primary thing. We've seen a massive increase in inflation. And although that has slowed down, it's not like it reversed itself, right? Like my orange right. juice has not gotten any cheaper, just stopped getting smaller. But we also see that sometimes people are not fulfilled in their job. And so it becomes, oh, well, I'll do a side hustle so that I can have my passion fulfilled, right? Oh, my job doesn't allow any creativity. So now I'll sell clothes and things that I design off of Etsy or I'll, you know, my job doesn't involve a lot of interaction with people and it doesn't involve moving around. So now I'll do food deliveries. And then in some cases with these elite gig workers that I study, we see that workers are doing gig work in order to get experience in something that their employer is not offering. So they want to know more about arranging deals or they want to move into marketing or communications in a way that their employer is like, mm, stay in your wheelhouse. And so then they'll end up turning to this gig work and having these little side hustles. They might, for them, they might end up doing consulting. But a lot of it is really just a failure. It is a failure of our employers to keep up. It is a failure of our economic system to take, you know, really use people's opportunities. There's a study out right now from H&R Block saying the average number of jobs held by millennials is two. That means for every millennial out there with one job, there's someone else who has three. And these are even people who are working full time. So, you know, student loans, inflation, stagnating salaries, all of it builds up together to have people constantly working. 
and there's this recurring historical pattern too, since, you know, back in the 1950s and the 1960s, employers would say, well, we can pay women less because they're just working for pin money. They just work for the money the family needs to take a vacation or redecorate the family room or something like that. And of course, the vast majority of working class and middle class women who were working were working because the family actually needed the money. So people talk about the side hustle as like, follow your passion, follow your dream. This is your passion project. But actually, even if you're like selling jewelry on TikTok and that's what you want to do, that becomes part of your budget. And it's increasingly difficult for people to say, I'm just going to work one job. Oh, yeah. Right. We've gone from one income could support a family in the 1950s, 60s into, oh, now we need two parent earners. Now we need every person to have two jobs. It's not surprising we're talking now about child labor too, right? Like that's part of this progression. Wait till the local dog, you know, we're going to start putting them on, I don't know, rent a pet or something. Well, and another thing Elizabeth Warren talked about, I'm sorry, I worked for her in 2020, so I've I've (laughs) got a head full of Elizabeth Warren. She's my hero. But another thing she always said is when everybody in the family is working, when somebody in the family gets sick, there's no one else to throw into the workforce. And that problem only gets worse if everyone, every adult certainly in the family is working multiple jobs. Exactly. And then also there's no one to take care of that person who gets sick. Right. So there's no right. leeway in the budget and there's no caring capabilities. And we know that people are getting sick. Right. Like I don't touch yeah. on long COVID too much, but there are definitely people in my book who've been like, yeah, I've been sick for forever. Younger people are getting sick and then they're just the normal things of parents get old and, and so on. So, Alexandria, I could talk to you forever about this book. I loved it so much, but we're drawing this interview to a close. So could you tell my listeners why they should read this book now? So we often think about the social safety net as something that is going to be there. But in reality, it's full of holes. And a lot more of us are starting to fall through those holes than we had ever thought was possible. And part of that is because of policy decisions that our legislatures have made in terms of reducing unemployment or making it harder to get. And part of it is also because of decisions that our employers have made to move us to 1099 work, or in some cases, because we have face such stagnant salaries and low incomes that we've had to take on polyemployment and we've inadvertently disqualified ourselves in many ways from unemployment assistance. We know that many people are not safe, right? This isn't like, oh, I'm a W-2 worker. I'm in a stable job. Everything is fine. We are seeing, even though no one really wants to talk about it, the economy is doing well, we are seeing layoffs of tenured faculty. We are seeing layoffs of tech workers. We are seeing layoffs of people who previously thought they were safe. And so These workers are the canaries in the coal mine, the workers in my book. They are showing us what type of future awaits all of us if we don't start making changes now. And that's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to Why Now on your favorite podcast platform. Please leave a rating and a comment so that other listeners can find us. Go to the Political Junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com 
for show notes, to listen to more episodes, or leave a comment. You can subscribe for free, or you can support my work for as little as $5 a month and get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop. Share this podcast with a friend who loves history, politics, and smart conversation. And you can follow me on Threads, Blue Sky, or Instagram. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claire Potter. My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. That's all for now. See you next time.